hope everybody is well. Welcome back to the Onyx Report, where we, uh-oh, let me get this going here, kind of a little rusty, but where we as black male justice advocates um, basically uplift black and boys using critical analysis. So uh, my apologies, just uh, having some technical things done here. Let me turn this off. Yeah, this is, uh, even though finals was last week, this is, I am still grading. So um, I'm going to try and get a few things in, but uh, we'll probably just be kind of to the point tonight, get a few things straight in. Y'all see what it is, what we're talking about. Uh, We are broadcasting on innerlightradio.com well as Facebook and YouTube. So hopefully you guys uh, be able to participate along those lines. I'm trying to make sure I am live. Okay. Looks like I am. Okay. Anyway, I'll see what it is today. You know what we're dealing with. We got to dive in, look at some of these boys because apparently uh, there are people that are quite content with ignoring them and I can't really go for that so bear with me as we get a few things kind of together here
All right. Hello, people. My apologies. Let me know if you guys can hear me okay. Okay, Jamal, let me know if you can hear me. Okay, now I think I'm back in at least. All right, so it looks like everybody can finally hear me again. I apologize. Y'all know what it is. It's uh, those technical issues, those pesky ones that get to us. All right, well, let me at least get my greetings in. I hope everybody is well. Uh, Christopher, what's up, Malika? Appreciate that support. Uh, Enigma, Ron, what's going on? Abdullah, um, right? Queen Kalila, how you doing? Let's see, bro man, what's up? Um, see Adrian, Green Gorilla, what's happening, man? Um, Mr. Blue Collar, right? Tarab, I'm listening. Uh, TD Hip Hop, Mr. Blue Collar, yep. Barry, what's up? Of course, the magnificent BGS in the house, what's going on? All right. Hope everybody's well. So let me start off by thanking my subscribers. Y'all know what it is. Um, those of you who are interested in doing so, I will show you how to in a moment. If you have not, uh, please pay attention to that. In the meantime, let me uh, thank them properly. Thank you to the all to all my subscribers. Those of you that may be interested in supporting, uh, please make sure that you head to my YouTube channel. And all you need to do from there is go ahead and click on the join button, which is uh, right next to the subscribe button and whatnot. Um, and you can go ahead and choose a level of membership and they, each one each one comes with perks. Um, but you can also go to my patreon.com and you can choose from there. And from Patreon, uh, there are a number of choices there as well. You can also, you can not only support the Onyx Report show, you can also support um, the Institute for Black Male Studies, right? So please make sure you do that. Uh, also make sure you support BGS Ibmore, support Green Gorilla, uh, Dr. Ronald Neal, you know, go out and support these brothers. Um, let me see. We've got a few people in here. W Hawkins. What's up? 72 pass. What's up? My Gnostic brothers. Good to see you in here as well. Um, so yeah. So anyway, so please make sure you support the show any way you can, uh, like share, subscribe, join and donate. You can donate here on YouTube. You can also donate through Patreon. You can donate through cash app, PayPal, Venmo, so on and so forth. Please make sure you support the show, right? As we are trying to keep things going, make sure that we, report to you as much as possible 
I will say that uh, this last week has been a little different, uh, mainly because it's been a lot of grading and I'm still grading. I think I have just two of my classes. I have about 500 pages of, of editing and grading, I should say, that I need to do. So I am, uh, you know, in the middle of all of that. Um, so that is fun, as you would guess. Um, it is. All right. What's up, Gemini? So, yeah. So we're getting it in. And first and foremost, I want to start today. Barry, appreciate that support. Right. And y'all go ahead and continue to support, please. Um, but anyway. So y'all know I do the Sacred Black Masculine series. And basically part of what that is, is not only that we celebrate black males over here, because we do, but it's also an attempt to make sure that as I cover uh, as much about what's going on with black men and boys as possible, that I also, you know, kind of highlight the successes, highlight the solutions, so on and so forth. Right. And I do that because there's so much to say about what we you know, dismiss what we overlook about black males that I do think it's important that we also take a moment to celebrate, you know, despite all that is happening. So first up, um, I want to shout out this young man right here. You can find this on um, blackenterprise.com, right? This is basically a piece about a 15-year-old young man. The title of it is Black Teen Graduates from College at 15, plans to pursue his MBA next, right? This young gentleman here, um, let me see, here we go. So Ian's journey to graduate early from high school and attend university, the University of North Texas started when his parents opted to remove him from public school to homeschool him at the age of seven, right? Um, mediocre learning inside the traditional school setting was not an option. According to Black Media Daily, the family's plan birthed remarkable results. Ian graduated high school at just 13 years old. He completed his undergraduate studies at 15, graduating magna cum laude with a bachelor's of science degree. In 2020, um, it was reported that Ian was uh, 12 the first time he stepped onto Toronto County College's Northeast campus. He says he was glad that he was allowed to excel. Uh, he says, when I progressed on to college, it was almost like where I belonged, right? And it's also reported that his older sister, Haley, uh, became the youngest person ever to attend Southern Methodist University Law at just 16. Right. So um, basically, his parents had pushed for homeschooling and his mother is actually author of the book or one of several authors of the book, The Homeschool Alternative and Turn on the Power. Uh, and she basically she and her husband uh, pushed for their kids to excel. So shout out to this young man whose name again is uh, Ian, trying to find the full, full, his full name. Yeah, here we go, Ian Taylor Schlitz. So shout out to him, congratulations to him for his success, that's what's up. Um, so, yeah. Now this one, just found out about a couple hours ago. Man, whole thing today is weird. Is Mercury in retrograde or something? What is going on? Um, this one I just heard about few hours ago y'all know the deal you know uh paul mooney right? one of the bravest comedians um i've ever heard of actually passed away very recently dead at 79 right this is uh you can find this all over of course i chose an article on rolling stone um 
I'm just finding out about this and I've been running from fence to, uh, fence to post today. So I didn't find out if anybody reported what the cause of death is. Actually, the article says no cause of death was provided, but I don't know if another report suggested it. That's one of the things that's been kind of bothering me because there have been more and more, you know, celebrity black men that we know of. You know, these are the ones that hit the news that have been passing away and there's been no indication about why. You know, so if anybody has any information about this, you know, make sure you go ahead and put it in the comment section. But uh, it says uh, it reads Paul. So, again, RollingStone.com. And it reads Paul Mooney, the comedian, writer and actor known for his close collaborations with Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle has died at the age of 79. Mooney died Wednesday at 530 a.m. at his home in Oakland, California. His representative confirmed to The Hollywood Reporter no cause of death was provided. Born Paul Gladney in Shreveport, Louisiana, 1941, the comedian who adopted his stage name Mooney after Scarface actor Paul Muni uh, first worked as a ringmaster in the circus. He moved into comedy inspired after witnessing a Lenny Bruce performance. He says, when I was like 16, I saw Lenny Bruce taken away out of a nightclub in handcuffs and, you know, for using words. Mooney, Mooney uh, whose comedy like Bruce's often courted controversy, told NPR in 2006. He first met Richard Pryor in L.A. in 1968. As Mooney often said, Pryor came to a party at Mooney's apartment and tried to initiate an orgy. So Mooney threw him out. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, uh, despite the awkward first meeting, the two became close collaborators with Mooney and Pryor co-writing episodes of the sitcom Sanford and Son uh, Son uh, together before the duo worked on the pioneering, controversial and short lived variety show, The Richard Pryor Show in 78. If you haven't seen The Richard Pryor Show, make sure you cop that. I have it on DM DVD powerful series, hilarious, uh, very short-lived, you know, um, prior talks about walking away from that, but uh, some excellent pieces in there. If you haven't had a chance to check out the Richard Pryor show, make sure you do that. Um, it says uh, Mooney is also credited with credited with contributing material to some of Pryor's Grammy winning comedy albums like 1976's Is It Something I Said and 1983's Live on Sunset Strip, as well as co-writing Pryor's autobiographical, autobiographical 86 film Jojo Dance, Your Life is Calling. When Pryor was recruited to host Saturday Night Live in December 75, he insisted that the show hire Mooney to write sketches for the episode, resulting in the classic job interview sketch between Pryor and Chevy Chase. In addition to his writing and stand-up work, Mooney carved out an on-screen career with notable roles in 78's The Buddy Holly Story, uh, where he played Sam Cooke. Interesting. Uh, the prior starring 1981 film Bustin' Loose and a pair of entertainment industry satires of uh, 1987's Hollywood Shuffle and Spike Lee's Bamboozled in, in 2000. Um, I had a chance to see Mooney and, um, oh my goodness, how do I forget? Oh man, Dick Gregory. Come on, how do I forget that? I had a chance to see them both perform uh, together and that was ridiculous. Uh, I want to say that might have been in Oakland like eight years ago or something, but I had a chance to see both of them on stage together and it was ridiculous. So shout out to Paul Mooney. Um, Enigma says an article he read um, said the cause of death was a heart attack. Okay. I'm not sure. I did read a while back um, that uh, he was suffering from dementia. Um, let me know if I'm misremembering that, but a few people are saying heart attack. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we got people going down right now, man. This is a season, and it's weird. 
Uh, strange, strange transitions jumping off, but nevertheless, shout out to Mooney, um, you know, uh, for his work. And again, if you haven't had a chance to sample any, uh, any of the things I just mentioned might be a good thing, a good place to start. But again, one of the fiercest and bravest comedians I've ever heard of who, uh, had a, a penchant for telling the truth and a very hard, uh, style. So, you know, shout out to him. Right. So yeah, man, people are going down. This is, this is, this is sad. You know, anyway, so like I said, we're going to jump in, uh, because it is still a grading period for me. Um, okay. Yeah. I see another article saying he had a heart attack. Okay. So this must've been after the Rolling Stones. Okay. Anyway, you know, as you know, as you guys know, support the Institute for Black Male Studies. You can go to the website. You can do that. You can watch free interviews and lectures. Um, you can also purchase merchandise. And of course, you can even take courses or watch uh, webinars. So uh, support the Institute, you know, so we can keep it going and we can expand. And if you have any thoughts about what you'd like to see on it, feel free to email me. And you can do that by going to my website, thasanjohnson.com. Uh, as you can see, listed right there on the screen underneath the uh, the, uh, the image. Right? And uh, you can go ahead and send me some ideas if you're interested in any of that there. Right? So thank you for that. So let's dive in a bit. Y'all see what it is. Black boys and social genocide. Now, why am I doing this today? Well, some of these shows come together because a number of different things hit my desk at the same time. And they usually kind of speak to um, the same issue on one level or another. And uh, it ends up being something that I can't help but deal with because not only did I live it as a young boy, I'm raising a son. And so I'm seeing the update, the 2021 version of the kind of misandry our boys get inside and outside of the community, the black community itself. So we're talking about uh, the larger society as well as what happens in many black homes. And I find that uh, there are some striking similarities one way or the other that disappoint me. Um, anyway, so I'm gonna try and share a video here and hopefully it will play the way uh, it should. Uh, see if we can get these things to collaborate for today. So let's, let's see. A tumultuous school year for most children, there is now a new concern for parents that their kids might be held back a year because they didn't learn enough this past year. In some states, it's actually the law. Rahema Ellis has details. What is this word? In a year of COVID learning, Sparkle Johnson struggled with two full-time jobs. You need help, Bob? It was probably one of the hardest things I've had to do working overnight as a medical assistant and during the day, helping her three children and six others in a learning pod. You think the children advanced? Children absolutely did not learn anything. Now, this Nashville mom and thousands of parents like her in Tennessee are wondering if their children will be left behind. A new state law says that if a third grader fails a standardized reading test, they will be forced to repeat the grade unless they attend a summer program and agree to tutoring. Tennessee joins 17 other states with similar reading retention policies. But parents like Sparkle say these laws do more harm than good. 
a child is setting them up for failure, wanting to hold them back, teaching them exactly what you're teaching them now, which is nothing. It's a controversial policy, but one that experts say has merits. Retention is not universally harmful to students, clearly has strong benefits for many students in the years immediately following the retention decision. And while the pandemic has focused attention on lagging literacy, it's not a new issue. Statistics show even back in 2019, 65% of Tennessee fourth graders were not reading at grade level. The majority of those are children of color. Not all children are receiving a quality education. Sonia Thomas is a parent who's teaching other Nashville families how to advocate for their kids. This state and other states around this country have failed to teach children how to read. If we don't have any other right, we have a right to be taught how to read. And that is not happening. Sonia chose to hold her own son back a grade and feels parental involvement is crucial. This is about partnership. This is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It shouldn't be. All children are different. Now, across America, parents helpless that their kids will be held back. Rahima Ellis, NBC News, Nashville, Tennessee. Still ahead, decades. Yeah. Now, there are a couple issues that I have with this. Um, and you'll see as we continue to dialogue about it, kind of things that I'm referring to. Apex, appreciate that support. Uh, yes, uh, uh, you know, happy born day, Mr. Malcolm, and rest in power for the Paul Mooney. Absolutely. Um, right. This is not just happening in Texas, but these are the issues that we're facing, right? So you have this whole question of how the pandemic is impacting students, right? And of course, the question is being asked about Black students, and rightly so. Uh, Christmas, appreciate the uh, the cash app. Thank you. Right? And it's rightly being asked about Black students. But one of the things that gets me, and I've been seeing this across platforms, whether we're talking about in the media, whether we're talking about academic presentations and papers, is this blanket emphasis on Black children, as if the situation is just impacting children across the board. I argue that it isn't. We'll see in a, in a little bit as we begin to de delve in what we're talking about, right? So this first question raised about, you know, you know whether the kids are being held back. You have families that are holding their own kids back even further. You know, this is one of the things I've noticed even last semester, looking at my son, right? He's 15. Uh, he's sitting in there on his bed right now doing homework on his laptop, right? And one of the things that I noticed last semester is he was literally working till 1130 at night, seven days a week. They would give him homework assignments on Saturday at two o'clock in the afternoon that were due at one in the morning. Right. So you have you actually have an overcompensation that some schools are are enacting. Right. Because they know many of these kids are not advancing. But at the same time, if you're you're already in a community that's behind, you already have difficulty with access, um, even just to the Internet. It's already a problem. I mean, even at the college level, the majority of my black students are attending classes on their phones, right? My other students are sitting at home with stable laptops and stable internet connections. My black kids are not only on their phones, they're often at work. And I require that you be on the, on the screen when I teach because, you know, otherwise, if I don't, I'll have, you know, 30 to 50 blank screens on there and, and you don't know what folks are doing. 
And I give you teachers out there an indication. You can tell when your students are not paying attention when class ends and all those screens are just sitting there blank. So I require that they actually be on video, right? Which is controversial in some respects because, you know, there are arguments against that. But nonetheless, when I do, what I find is more often than not, my black students are on their phones and they're at work. So I'm watching students shelving shelves at grocery stores with their phones on, you know, while they're doing it. You know, sitting in classrooms where they're, you know, aiding teachers, whatever kind of job they have. This is one of the things I noticed. And overwhelmingly, it tends to be black students that are doing this. Right? This is the thing that, that gets me going. You know, because I see how the divide impacts us. And when you look at K through 12 and you begin to notice how it keeps them behind, it's becoming more and more of an issue that I think people need to discuss. Right. But one of the first issues I want to delve into and relate to this whole question of how visual education online is impacting learning, uh, is impacting students and how far they're able to progress, most particularly black students. I want to deal with this issue of implicit bias. This is coming from a piece you can find on medicine.yale.edu. It's entitled, Do Early Educators' Implicit Biases Regarding Sex and Race Relate to Behavior, uh, Expectations, and Recommendations of Preschool Expulsions and Suspicions? Now, what are we talking about? Well, we're not only looking at the impact of the pandemic and uh, this online push uh, to try and keep up in terms of education on students, but we're also looking at how implicit bias plays a role and how implicit bias plays a role as early as preschool, right? So if these are the conditions that are in place before we even get to the question of the pandemic, how then is the pandemic supposed to impact it, right? right? So this is what we're talking about. So I'll read you a portion of the abstract. It's a good, you know, good sized paragraph, so bear with me. The abstract reads, preschool expulsions and the disproportionate expulsion of black boys have gained attention in recent years, but little has been done to understand the underlying causes behind the issue. This study examined the potential role of preschool educators' implicit biases as a viable partial explanation behind disparities in preschool expulsions. Participants were recruited at a large conference of early educators and completed two tasks. In task one, participants were primed to expect challenging behaviors, although none were present, while watching a video of preschoolers, balanced by sex and race, engaging in typical activities as the participants' eyes glaze, uh, eyes, as the participants' eyes gazes were tracked. In task two, participants read a standardized vignette of a preschooler with challenging behavior and were randomized to receive the vignette with the child's name, implying either a black boy, black girl, white boy, or white girl, as well as randomized to receive I received the vignette with or without background information on the child's family environment. Findings revealed that when expecting challenges, uh, challenging behavior, teachers gaze longer at black children, especially black boys. Now, let me let me pause right there. This is preschool. This is how boys are treated in preschool. And one of the things that I'm really going to emphasize tonight is how this generic language of children of color is a problem. But here's the other problem. It's gotten to the point where the language of black children children is almost as problematic. Why? Because both dance around the reality of who is actually suffering the most in these classes, who's being mistreated, and it's starting and ending with black boys. 
and even black educators, even black scholars, even those who are talking about education in the media will not often say black boys. They'll use very generic language, as I said, black children, you know, black people, kids, kids of color, so on and so forth, all to avoid the elephant in the room, black boys. And this is a constant. You know, you can consider this show a part two to the one BGS and I did um, a number of months ago where we were talking about um, the impact of black boys. And one of the things we talked about or on black boys in education, we looked at how in the eighth grade level on a national scale, right, black boys or only 10% of black boys were reading proficient, 12% in math and science. Again, prior to the pandemic. So when you have the stress of the pandemic added to this issue, which happens? What, who does it impact the most? But again, if we're afraid to even say black boy, then how the hell are we going to provide services? And yet, when black boys were the target of sort services, and you guys have seen, if you haven't, um, a few videos ago, I did a short piece. It was one of my daily videos talking about who the first people are to uh, challenge any institutions or um, and, and propositions that are designed and targeted at black boys. And often the first ones to challenge it are black mothers. And the argument tends to be, what about the girls? Now, nobody seems to care in that instance that the girls are actually, you know, the most enrolled demographic in higher education. Nobody seems to care. It seems to kind of fall through the radar, but we celebrate it on other terms. You know, when that's, when it's just an open discussion, we can celebrate the successes of black girls but when it comes to targeting the boys, now all of a sudden we got to shift to an Obama plan. And what's the Obama plan? Rising tide lifts all boats. But it doesn't. And even if it does, black boys still are the lowest ranking. And again, I challenge and question how many actually fucking care. And why do I say that? How many programs have you guys seen on a national level that target black boys? Now, we do know there was this uh, proposal initiated by Obama, right? My brother's keeper. Who shot it down? I actually saw black educators sending around petitions. Appreciate JL. Appreciate that support. I saw black educators, black women educators were the first ones to shoot it down. We're not talking about redneck, you know, Tea Party, Trump support. We're not talking about white conservatives who took issue with any kind of help targeted at black males or even males of color for that matter. The first group that I saw tear this down were black women. And I talked about a program going back to the early 1990s. I think it was in Detroit. that was trying to set up multiple schools to try and turn this thing around as far as black boys were concerned. And black mothers were the first one to actually bring a lawsuit to dismantle it, dismiss it. Shout out to BGS for the article uh, on that. So here in this particular piece I'm bringing up, again, the data is showing us, even in terms of implicit bias, even in terms of the, the teachers and who they're looking at, who they're associating with trouble, children. I've told this story before. This is that also happened with me when I was a kid. It also has happened with my son. Who went, I mean, even in preschool, you know, I, he, I think he got bounced out of, Ooh, he might have been bounced out of six or seven of them. Yeah. It wasn't until I actually brought him to 
uh, a most it is is owned by uh, two sisters. I understand it. One was the, in the Nation of Islam, and that was the one I initially had talked to when I brought him in. That was the only place I found that wasn't afraid of him at five. Now I'm a little biased, but he was the cutest thing I'd ever seen. But but schools were afraid of him. He'd been bounced out of more preschools than I can imagine until I brought him to one where they weren't afraid of him, and he flourished. And then he started kindergarten. And the first week, they wanted to put him in special ed. When I came in and witnessed, I was sitting in the class because I only had to teach two days a week. So I'd pop in at random three days a week. Yeah, he'd be acting like a five-year-old, but guess what? He wasn't the only one. There's a whole class full of five-year-olds. White, Indian, Pakistani, Mexican, running around, acting like five-year-olds. Who, who, who kept getting put in timeout? That was a whole different question. And I watched this happen from kindergarten through third grade, even to the extent where he was sat in the back of the room for an entire semester by himself by the time he was in second grade. Mind you, this kid was reading 700-page Harry Potter books by the first grade by himself. I wouldn't read them to him. But he's in special ed. Thank you, show me. Or I should say they wanted to put him in special ed. I refused to let them, which they weren't used to, which was interesting in and of itself, right? So that said, as we go back to this question of implicit bias, we can see that the signs are already pointing to a disparity between how other kids and black boys are seen. Notice I didn't say other kids and black kids. No, other kids and black boys. And even in the classes that my son was in, when he was sat in the back of the room by himself and he was acting no different from the rest of the kids in the room, there were black girls in the class as well. They weren't sat in the back with him. He was sat in the back by himself. Even when he was the top performer in his class, even when he was in the top two and three kids in his class, all the way up through fifth grade, kept having to fight teachers from sitting him off by himself. And what do you think a kid learns when they're treated like a problem? Even subtle things at five, when a teacher will get up and go hug a white student or female student for that matter, particularly if it's a female teacher, right? When the, when the student gives the right answer, she'll get out of her chair and go hug a female student or a white student. And will say from a distance at best, good answer. To a black boy or ignore a good answer altogether and only talk to him in a disciplinary tone. Now, mind you, you got 30 kids running around at different points acting a fool, but she'll use that disciplinary tone only with the black boys, but she'll give tactile approval to others. What do you think boys learn from that? Even as young as five, my son could not articulate how he felt. He couldn't articulate uh, whether or not the teacher made him feel good or bad. Couldn't do any of that. The most he could do was cry. I had to sit in and watch it for it to become real. It was damn near like watching a, watching an, watching Mississippi burning or something. You know, it's one thing to read it and, and read about it and teach it. So it's, it's another thing to watch somebody treat your child like an alien and like a problem. Even when he's performing at the top of his class. One point at preschool, <clears throat> I went to pick him up. One of the schools. Well, welcome this, to the appreciate the support, um, ghetto user. Uh, or a, a new membership. Welcome to the Brotherhood and the Onyx Report. 
But there was one point, uh, one of the uh, preschools, I took him out of. He didn't get kicked out of this one. I took him out. I went to go see him, see him one day and I was going to pick him up. And the teacher said, well, you might want to be concerned, you know, in his transition to, uh, to, to kindergarten because he might need remedial assistance. I was like, remedial? So what are you talking about? Well, your son doesn't know his shapes and his colors and his alphabet. I mean, he's about, he had to be about three and a half, three and a half, four. So where do you get this from? She said, well, when we do activities as a group, he can never answer any of the questions. I said, word. So we're in the room. You know, they have the shapes and the colors and the alphabet all on the wall. And my son's over there in the back playing with action figures and chasing one of the kids, having fun. I called him up. I said, so what's the problem? He said, well, he just, it's not really a problem. He's just behind and we think he might need some help. I said, where? All right. I said, Ra, read everything on this board. Tell her all the colors, the shapes. And I didn't stop him. He just went one after the other all the way through. And her mouth dropped. White lady, mouth dropped. Oh my God. I didn't know he could do that. I said, ma'am, he didn't feel like doing the work you wanted him to do because he wanted to play. He's four. Four-year-olds will do that. I expect you to be smarter than a four-year-old and find different ways to get the answer out. Because the kid is not one of your remedial kids. He's actually in the top of your little class. And if you can't figure that out, he doesn't need to be here. Anyway, this is kind of shit our boys deal with. So, continuing the last portion. Providing family um, background information resulted in lowered severity ratings when teacher and child race matched but resulted in increased severity ratings when their race did not match. No differences were found based on recommendations. Appreciate the support, Major Payne. Um, Excuse me. Uh, No differences were found based on recommendations regarding suspension or expulsion, except that black teachers in general recommended longer periods of disciplinary exclusion, regardless of child, gender, and race. Recommendations for future research and policy regarding teacher training are offered. So what what is this saying? Basically, what it's saying is at one point, it started to provide background information on the children to see if there was increased empathy and how the teachers began to respond. And overwhelmingly, what they found was that there was an increase in empathy, but mainly when the race matched, when the teacher and the children's race matched. This is part of what I'm talking about with my son, right? His white teachers fundamentally did not see him as human. And I'm using my son because this is very reflective of black boys and our experiences overall. And we, many of us as black men, you know, if we think hard enough, many of us can remember that feeling of alienation, even in K through 12, especially if you went to, you know, a predominantly white school or at least had schools with predominantly white teachers. And we know the overwhelming percentage of teachers are white females, right? Across the board. So this is the truth. Ben, appreciate that support. Right? This is the treatment of our boys. So again, when you factor in what is happening, right, to black kids in the midst of black boys in particular, in the- appreciate that, Stuart. Thank you. Um, when you look at what's happening to black boys, <laughs> physician assistant, appreciate the support. When you look at what's happening to these black boys during the pandemic, you first have to start by asking the question, what's been happening to them already? Because any stress you add to a system is going to first make more vulnerable those who are already distressed. That's how it starts. And any structure you have, if you provide stress to it, like an earthquake on a building, 
the first part that's going to uh, that's going to suffer a collapse are the parts that are already distressed, the parts that are already are already problematic. Those are the ones that are going to respond first to increase stress. So when you look at black boys and how they're treated uh, in the school system, one of the things you find is that when you add the stress of a pandemic and you add the stress of online education, when you add the stress of them learning in an environment where they may not have the support they need, they may not have the food they need, they might not even have a stable internet connection, they're the first ones that are going to respond. And Terry is right. Uh, Terry B. 2002 in the comment section is pointing out. The, appreciate that, Harry. Uh, he's pointing out the lack of black male elementary school teachers. This is fundamental. Right? You've seen plenty. Uh, there are multiple data sources that point out that kids tend to do better when they are modeled by teachers that look like them. But this is not just racial. This is also gender. And you got to prov- provide incentives for black males become teachers, especially if they can't support families on them, right, on teaching. You got to provide incentive, uh, incentives for that. Uh, Harry says, I appreciate your platform. This issue is also a UK one, and I was sabotaged for 11 years as a result. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was too. There was nobody in the K-12 through uh, period of my life that thought I was going to be a professor. No one. And there was a good period, I'd say from fifth through sixth grade, where I was in fights every week. You called me a nigga, we were going at it. And I stayed in fights for a good period of time. Right? So it was at war, as far as I was concerned, in elementary school. And none of that was really taken into account. It was just regarded that I was, you know, a problem. I don't think I had a teacher that expressed faith in my, pos- in my uh, potential until maybe third year of college. So, you know, the only thing that kept me in school is I didn't really have any other talents. <laughs> wasn't it? I mean, I, you know, I was good enough to make the team for certain sports, but I wasn't about to be in the NBA or the NFL. You know, um, I wasn't talented outside of school. The only talent I had is that homework came easy to me. That was about pretty much about it. But even though it came easy to me, there were no teachers that reached out of hand in, in any significant way. I was a kid that sat, whether I sat in the front or the back of the class, I was just completely disconnected. Thanks for the support, Protector. Um, But I still got good grades. So that was my only talent. That's what kept me in school. And it took until my third year of undergrad before I actually ran into a teacher that gave a damn. Right? Uh, Protector says, they tried to medicate my son at age five. I fought it. Now he's a multi-instrumentalist, martial artist at age 12. That's right. And that's one of the things it's going to require. It's going to require that our boys most particularly be advocated for and most particularly by fathers. By fathers. Fathers are going to have to advocate for these boys' humanity. And I'll show you why as we we continue on. So we we know that in terms of implicit bias, whether we're talking about who the, the teachers associate with trouble, who their eyes follow most when it comes to trouble, who they conceptualize in their mind when asked about problematic children and all the way down to what happens when you give background information on t- on, on various students. We can see who gets empathy and who doesn't. At the end of the day, it ends up serving black boys to a h- highly negative degree, right? 
There's an article a good associate of mine sent me. It's entitled The Burden of Being on Point. This you can find in the Atlantic. Right. And basically it has to do with, well, I'll just read the first portion of portion of it to you so you can see where I'm going with this. Social workers and educators who see young people, especially black boys who live in poor segregated neighborhoods, react aggressively, become irritable, or have trouble concentrating on often identifying such behavior as maladaptive. Right. So basically what they're saying is uh, when they look at black boys, and these are social workers, right? So first we talked about teachers, now we're looking at social workers. And social workers look at black boys. The only frame that they have for looking at them more often than not is maladaptive. What's up, Stylus? Uh, Stylus in the comment section, an educator. And so for quite a while now, at least over 20 years at this point, um, he can speak to this, right? Out in the East Coast, knows what's up, right? So that said, what's up, Officer Faulkner? I see you in there. Um, I'll continue. Let's see. But new research led by Noni Galen Harden, a clinical psychologist at Texas A&M University, proposes that the young people's behavior is a rational response to their environment and helps keep them safe. Her findings suggest that instead of focusing on these behaviors, identifying them as pathologies to be punished or symptoms to be treated, policymakers need to recognize them as adaptive and work to change the inequitable environment that produces them. So in other words, what she is proposing is that when you start to look at black kids from the vantage point of being a social worker, black boys, right? Instead of labeling them as maladaptive, she's actually suggesting you look at the environment in which they live. And she said, what, what you'll find more often than not is that it's not that they're problematic or they're maladaptive. It's because they are responding in a very reasoned manner to the environment they're in. That's one of, that's one of the things her research brought her to. Her study builds upon the work of scholars such as Jocelyn Smith-Lee, an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, who in 2013 launched a project investigating trauma, violence, and loss among Black men. She partnered with mental health clinicians at a GED prep and job training center in East Baltimore. Her goal was to recruit 40 Black men ages 18 to 24 to participate in a loss, grief, and bereavement group. At the beginning of the program, Lee gave each participant a timeline and asked him to mark the year someone he knew had died and indicate which of those people had been killed. Right? Lee quickly found a pattern in these chronologies of loss, as she termed them. On average, the young men knew three people who had been killed. One young man named 10 family members and friends. 11 participants had witnessed a loved one's murder. In many cases, the homicides came in back-to-back -back years, but sometimes in sequential months. Their frequency raised an urgent question. What does it mean for a group of young men to figure out who they are and when their peers are being killed? And how do you respond to that? We've seen in the military, you can be at war and if enough you know, of your, 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 your fellow soldiers are killed alongside you, what does it produce? What kind of psychological responses to that? Well, what happens when you're dealing with black kids who are losing friends at the same rate of soldiers at war? What does it produce in their behavior and in their worldview? Now, this is obviously the most extreme level where you're talking about kids who are losing friends before the ninth grade, right? Before the 10th grade, that's a whole thing. But there are lesser environments, lesser tense environments that still produce similar or at least behavior that is similar, but on a lower level, especially when you're talking about kids who don't know where the next meal is coming from. This is what the Black Panther Party dealt with in the 1970s. They set up breakfast programs. They were noticing 
She had kids that were being that were you know it was being demanded that they perform at school. But what happens when they don't have any food? How do they perform? How do they act? It's not wholly dissimilar from what we're dealing with now. We're just dealing with it where you know kids are in their individual homes. But it is nonetheless what we're talking about, right? Let me see. It continues. In East Baltimore, where all the signs of disinvestment and vestiges of segregation remain, the young men developed coping strategies for the violence they'd witnessed. They became hypervigilant, testy, and aggressive. To Lee, these scanned as classic signs of PTSD, except for one aspect. In the mental health community, we use the language of post-traumatic stress. But there isn't a post context for this group of young men. This is happening where they live. When she asked one young man whether he recognized that this was what he was experiencing, his answer was straightforward. You have to be on point, he said. Otherwise, he might be next. What are we saying? With PTSD, post implies that it's over. A soldier who has PTSD from an experience in war comes home. Doesn't mean that the soldier isn't still grappling with what occurred. Doesn't mean that the soldier is not you know, mistreated in some way when they come back into society. They've been trained for war and not necessarily for peace. I get it. But what she's talking about here is for many of these young men, there's no war that's ended. It's continued. And you're assessing them while in a continued heightened state of conflict. Now, again, there are lesser levels that are not as extreme. It doesn't necessarily have to be death. It can be just consistent poverty. It can be something as simple as consistently being overlooked in your classrooms where your teachers expect little to nothing from you. I am not at all putting that on par with losing friends on a regular basis to, you know, to gun violence or anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying though, is that if you have a constant stressor, when you're talking about kids age five to 17, hell, this is the first article is on a preschool. So you can talk, you know, one to two years old to 17 when there's a constant stress of being disregarded, of being assumed to be the problem before you've even opened your mouth, where your misbehavior, I said misbehavior, your misbehavior is given twice the attention of others, even before there's a reason it need be, right? And when no one expects much of you, how do these things begin to impact kids? And again, all of this is happening long before we reach 2020. We have to start really looking at the impact of pandemic education. How does it affect our kids more often than not? Physician assistant health educator Omar says, I've worked at inner city hospitals and clinics for years. There are so many, there are so many cases of PTSD and depression among young black men. They've been misdiagnosed as bad. Absolutely. When I worked in Philadelphia, one of the jobs I took as I was doing my master's degree was I had to teach a GED course. And it was mostly black and Puerto Rican uh, young men, 14 to 17 year old, years old, court ordered to me in my class. Now I'm 21, right? 21 years old. And I'm in here teaching these kids and they are my size. It's awkward, but they're kids. But they've been treated like hardened, grown criminals and they're kids. And of course, everybody's afraid of them, right? So I'm in there working with these kids. I'm going to tell you, there is nothing like having a grandmother call your house at six in the morning, begging you not to fail her son because he's going to go back to jail. 
and you're 21 and this is a job you just took a few months ago. There's nothing like that. But anyway, I digress. That being said, working with these kids, one of the things I found when I worked with them and began to talk to them, not only were they no different from any other kids, when you got to the bottom of what it was that they were frustrated about, it was a justifiable reason. I had one kid who was taking care of his mother who was dying of AIDS. He was 14. He's going to school. He's hustling and financially taking care of the household. His mother was bedridden and he had siblings. So when they labeled him as having an attitude, I was like, word, that's what you call it. An attitude. 14 year old boy taking care of his mother and his siblings. He got busted selling drugs because there was nothing else he could think to do to make enough money to take care of his household. He had to watch his mother deteriorate in front of him. Another kid was violated by his mother's friend and I believe his aunt. He was raped. His boys laughed at him. The boys that he did decide to share it with. He went to the police department. They laughed him out of the precinct. Again, 14-year-old black male raped by female family members. Nowhere to go. Everywhere he did try to go, dismissed him. And when he acted out in response with the rage that he felt, he was a problem. The interesting thing about it was he'd been put out of school. He went to a juvenile facility and then he got out and was sitting in my class trying to get a, you know an early GED or whatever. And nobody had bothered to ask him why he got in trouble, why he, why he was frustrated. He was raped multiple times on a regular basis. And why? Well, as far as many people are concerned, black boys and men can't be raped. So he's suffering from a problem that nobody believes exists in the first place. Even now, 2021, when I report on boys that have been raped, people don't care. A lot of people don't even watch the videos. And I repeatedly have trolls that'll come in and laugh this off, knowing full well that if I just replace the gender of the person in question, it'd be an issue, a major issue. But part of what I'm trying to say today you know, because we're looking at teachers. Now we're looking at social workers. What black boys are grappling with is institutional. It is well-structured, well-ensconced. And it's so well-placed and institutionally based that it's invisible. Invisible. When you get used to structures in place, they become invisible to you. Think about it. How many of you even think about just the, you just take the concept of a road. Look at the city you live in how many roads you see, right? I was watching a movie not long ago. You know, it was set in the ancient period before there were roads and watching people working, you know, walking through forests and shit, horseback. And I thought about that. I said, you know, how much does the very concept of a road simplify life? I can get in my car and drive someplace in 45 minutes that would take me days, sometimes weeks to get to otherwise if not longer, depending on what it is. But we take roads for granted because they're well-placed. Well, it's not a whole lot different when you start to talk about what black boys face. Institutionally speaking, they witness everyone else being able to enjoy the benefits of what is well-structured. 
They, however, experience a different type of structure. It too is well-structured, but it is well-structured against them. And it is so frequent and wide-spanning that it's invisible to most people. And when I point it out, people blame the boys. Especially if they're over 15, you know, blame them as if they're grown men. No. But what happens when they're two and three years old? You still blaming black boys? What happens when they're treated the same way at three that they are at 15? You still blaming the boys? I'm going to tell you, your perspective changes when you have your own child. Cliche as it sounds, it's real. I was the one to hold my son when he came out of his mother. I watched him take his first steps. I watched him recite his first words. I saw him smile for the first time. I watched this boy develop before he knew what a lie was. And yet I also watched him as early as when I took him to preschool. I watched him be mistreated by people who didn't care. Some of whom were black women, which I didn't expect. The one that stands out most in my mind when he was three, he's two and a half, three. He was the same size as this little girl. And we came to pick him up one day. And the, the, the sister that owned the facility said, well, he can't come back here. I said, well, why? He said, well, he and this little girl got into a little thing about the toy and they were pulling the toy on one another. And, you know, she hit him. No, I'm sorry. Uh, they were pulling the toy and he hit her. And it wasn't, he's two and a half. He wasn't, wasn't like some structured punch from the hip. You know, no, he's just a little kid. And she said, but I couldn't believe he hit her. And how dare he? I said, ma'am, he's two. What are you talking about? And they were the same size. But what I noticed was there was no humanistic reflection on what a two-year-old will do and how they'll act. Even if he's no more physical threat than anybody else in the room under three years old. And how much of a threat is that really? Anyway, these are the kind of things we talk about, right? Or at least we should, and I don't think we talk enough about but the lack of empathy on, on, you know, when extended to our boys is a problem. It's one of the things that I grapple with most, right? Um, so going back, let me see. Um, okay. Okay. Let's see. But the researchers also found something they didn't expect. Surprisingly, they wrote, such cautious avoidance tactics did not necessarily protect the boys from experiencing violent and violent victimization. It turns out that those who were less likely to be victims of violence, including by police, were not only vigilant, they also showed a willingness to respond aggressively to perceived threats. Too frequently, young people see efforts to curb such behavior as unhelpful and tune them out. We have to ensure our interventions are contextually relevant. When I asked Gaylord Harden the obvious question, how do we begin to address community violence to eliminate the need for a trauma response, she pointed the efforts such as Houston Peace, a nonprofit in Houston, Texas, that focuses on decreasing youth violence. Its multi-pronged strategy includes mental health counseling and rehabilitation through community activities rather than punishment. She also highlighted the Center for the Prevention of School-Age Violence in Philly, uh, which is doing the same. But her larger answer sounded remarkably familiar. In fact, most of her recommendations can be found in the reports of the 1947 Truman Commission or the 1968 Kerner Commission. We understand the drivers of violence, poverty and economic insecurity, unemployment, lack of resources, especially now during the pandemic. Um, 
Such as such, the solutions to preventing violence include affordable housing, jobs that pay a living wage, better funded schools. In short, the solution is to change the environment that produces the trauma. So what does all that mean? Well, it basically means that the aggressive behavior she's seeing in these students, in these young men, I should say, uh, is reflective of their environment. And they actually experience less trauma if they are diligent, if they are vigilant, and if they are prepared to respond in kind to the violence they get. But if you change the nature of the environment, they respond accordingly, right? You kind of eliminate the stress disorder when you change the environment. And again, these were happening before the pandemic. It's only being exacerbated in many instances after. 272 watching, please make sure you like, share, subscribe, join, and donate, if you will, support the channel, right? So let's go back to preschoolers, right? One of the, new, the reports that I kind of ran across when I was, you know, looking into this a little bit is one you can find on NPR.org entitled Black Preschoolers Far More Likely to Be Suspended. I remember that title, Black Preschoolers, Right? A government study on discipline in the nation's public schools shows just how very early that gap is present. According to the report, black children make up 18% of preschoolers, but make up nearly half of all out-of-school suspensions. We're talking mostly about four-year-olds. Across age groups, black students are three times more likely than white students to be suspended. White boys make up the large majority of students who are suspended, about 8 out of 10. Uh, About 12% of of black girls are suspended and 7% of Native American American girls are suspended. That's a rate higher than that of white boys, uh, 6%. Um, Black students make up about 16% of enrolled students, but make up more than a quarter of all students who are referred to the police. Uh, Native Americans are overrepresented among the suspended. They make up 1% of the enrolled students, but 2% of the suspended. Students with disabilities make up about 12% of the student populations, but they make up 75% of those restrained at schools. There's a racial gap there too. Blacks are about 19% of the population with a disability, make up more than a third of the students who are restrained at the school through the use of mechanical uh, of a mechanical device or equipment designed to restrict their freedom of movement, right? All right, hold on, I'm lose my page here. Um, but an interesting study released- Appreciate the support, Drew. Thank you. But uh, an interesting study released in February suggests a contributing factor. A team of Harvard researchers found that black boys face harsher punishment because they're they're often perceived as older than they actually are. Right? Study also involved 264 mostly white female undergraduate students from a large public U.S. university uh, or a variety of universities. In one experiment, students rated the innocence of people ranging from infants to 25-year-olds who were black white or an unidentified race. Students judged children up to nine years old as equally innocent regardless of race, but considered black children significantly less innocent than other children in every other age age group beginning at age 10, the researchers found. Now see, this is part of the problem. Even the researchers are using this gender vague language like children, right? And that's important when you notice a, a vast difference in how one gender is treated versus another. This is ironic, considering how intersectionality is supposed to be the theory of the day and has been such since, what, 1989? And yet intersectionality has been designed to primarily focus on Black women and girls. But when it clearly shows race, gender, and class-wise that Black boys actually suffer from many different issues far more than any other demographic, including Black girls and women, suddenly intersectionality doesn't have any place. 
This is why in black male studies, we've had to create whole new concepts like anti-black misandry because black boys and men are left out of intersectionality. Intersectionality only matters when it highlights black women and girls in a way that is politically useful. But when it comes to black boys, you're not going to really have any severe, serious conversations about intersectionality when boys are problematized in one way or four. So just in the section I just read, right? Students judge children up to nine years old as equally innocent regardless of race, but consider black children significantly less innocent. It's already a problem. The students were also shown photographs alongside descriptions of various crimes and asked to assess the age and innocence of white, black, or Latino boys aged 10 to 17. The students overestimated the age of black boys. And I had to add that word boys because they just, you know, they, they start using words like blacks by an average of four and a half years and found them more culpable than whites or Latinos, particularly when the boys were matched with serious crimes, the study found. Researchers used questionnaires to assess the participants' prejudice and dehumanization of blacks. Dehumanization of blacks. They found that participants who implicitly associated blacks with apes thought the black children were older and less innocent. Why do I differentiate? And, and call so much attention to this kind of flat blackness that they're talking about, right? Uniquely and strategically used flat blackness, terms like blacks, children, you know, these kind of generic terms on gendered grounds. I call question to it because when you look at boys, right, from age four and onward, they are hyper-disciplined in schools. They are sent to juvenile facilities, and extremely high at extremely high rates. And of course, we know that by the time they graduate, or at least, you know, graduate in terms of age into adulthood, they're incarcerated, much higher rates. This starts as young as four. This is not about what happened at 18 when they got into a violent confrontation or whatever. This is as young as four. The systemic and institutional alienation of young black boys starts as young as three and four years old. And I would argue as a father watching my son's experiences and the story I just told you about him getting kicked out of a daycare because of he, he because he acted like a two year old. I argue it starts much younger than that, younger than four. I argue it starts between one and two. That's as early as I've seen the mistreatment start for many boys. These boys are identified and targeted in the goddamn womb. Wage war upon and we use generic language to deflect from actually looking at the lives of black boys. We deflect from it. We dismiss it. And then we justify ways to fund and support everyone but them. The last few months, we've talked about Goldman Sachs, Google, Visa, MasterCard. We've talked about private companies. We've talked about federal governments that the federal government that's began to invest resources in women and girls. And they're doing this because many, in many instances, you know, not only are they being told, especially by black female employees who've been trained in intersectionality theory to identify black women and girls as the most vulnerable group. That's part of it. When resources come to bear, these women that are in position will, of course, begin to articulate what they've learned. That black girls are the most in need, most dire. And it doesn't hurt that in the last year we've started to see more black women on the cover of time and you guys heard me talk a little bit about this in the buck breaking documentary 
by Tariq Nasheed. If you haven't seen it, I was in there talking about this very issue. Right? You have a country that's been reintroduced to black women as sacrificial saviors. Right? And I'm not arguing that there aren't black women that have gone above and beyond. I'm not arguing that at all. There are some. So I'm not saying that they haven't. What I am saying, however, is it's amazing to me who can be on the cover despite who's bleeding out on the ground. I find it interesting. Who gets celebrity commercials? Millions of dollars in donations. Not the families of the deceased. Hell, the sad part about being a black male who's killed uh, unjustly is you can't even support your family in death because the resources that would normally go to you go to everyone but you and it's highly problematic but that's where we are right now that's exactly where we are so it doesn't matter who's dying we see who is getting the support and no one cares that's the part that gets me no one gives a damn I put stories on my channel about black males. They are the least watched. There's three stories I can think of in the last three months about black males who've been unjustly treated on a primarily black male channel. Those videos haven't even broken a thousand views. I find it interesting. Nevertheless, what we're looking at here we're talking about the ways in which boys are made out to black boys are made out to be older, made out to be more violent, made out to be more of a problem, even when they are. They're added. Uh, they're given about four and a half years on their age simply at the assumption. Now, this this lets us know in terms of implicit bias, what kinds of attitudes, worldviews and perceptions are being associated with the black male body at, at on site, what people associate with you. And this is why I'm terrified, even as a parent. My son is six foot seven. He's the most innocent video game playing kid you'll ever run across. Get him started on anime. You'll have a three hour discussion. Loves it. Doesn't have a violent bone in his body. But if he's walking home and somebody identifies him as a threat because of the very things we're talking about, this implicit bias, this association of certain ideas with the black male body, the more threatening the black male body appears, the more intense the associations. So if you're three years old, four years old, and you're being treated like you're eight, nine, and 10, and I've witnessed that with him as well, what happens when you're 15 and six foot seven? Hmm? What kinds of ideas get associated with the black male body then? How many people will aggress toward you based on things that are in their head, have nothing to do with you? And the sad part is when it hits the news, People assume you did something first. Second, if you died, it immediately becomes about everybody but you. You are enough to attract attention, but the resources and the politics that develop off your dead fucking body go to everyone but you. From Cadillac commercials to movies, to donations, to structured programs, to nonprofits, it benefits everybody but you.
Appreciate the support, L. Simpson. Thank you. Here's another one. WashingtonPost.com. New federal data shows black preschoolers still disciplined at far higher rates than whites. Even the title, black preschoolers. It's very much like when I put articles up about female teachers raping boys. They never use the word rape. I won't say never. Shouldn't. I'd like to say never, but as an academic, I technically can't say never. I can just say it's extremely rare that the term rape or sexual assault is used to describe women, mainly female teachers or, or females in positions of authority who violate young males. Rape is rarely used, not only in the title, but even in the articles themselves. And of course, the way, that, you know, if they go to uh, go to court, if they're sentenced, we know that the rates of sentencing are about 65 percent less for women than they are for male of uh, uh, male uh, aggressors. About 65 percent less. But in this instance, they don't even use the terms. Well, that's exactly what you're having here. See, I pulled out about five or six different pieces I'm looking over. And they're not even using the term boy. We deflect the concept to just kids, maybe black kids. Black kids aren't the ones having trouble graduating from high school. Black kids aren't the ones who've been having trouble getting into college. I've told you this a hundred times. I'm going to keep saying it. Largest university system in the country, the Cal State University system. 70% of black males drop out their first year. That is the small percentage of black males that make it into college in the first damn place. And the problems that, that, that that are persisted that have everything to do with why there are so few that actually apply and get in, let alone those who drop out. The problems that persist in this regard start as young as two to four years old. But we're talking about black children, right? It's like the first time I, I actually saw a documentary. This was about a year and a half ago on the Atlanta child murders. Look that up when you get a chance. One of the things that shocked me when I watched the documentary was how many of them were boys. Now, I didn't watch the documentary with any intention. I mean, I'd heard about the Atlanta child murders, but I didn't live in Atlanta. So let's be real. I only, you know, it went kind of in one ear and out the other. I was a kid, you know, when it happened. I didn't. You know, I didn't really understand. So I'm finally watching this documentary and they show you the faces, right? They tell you the stories. And I was overwhelmed at how many of them were boys and not once, not once did they refer to them as mostly boys. Hell, there was such a, there was a long stretch of time before it was actually any girls violated. Even during that time period where it was a hundred percent boys, nobody would say black boys. Nobody, even in the documentary, they wouldn't say boys. But we understand why. When Obama said boys, it was a problem. When he said, let's do, you know, my brother's keeper and we can deal with boys. He wasn't even saying black boys. He said boys of color and it had to be shut down. Had to be shut down. So in this particular piece, WashingtonPost.com, says, while there have been some encouraging signs, the rate of suspensions and expulsions fell sharply between 2015, 2016, and 2017 and 2018. Same stubborn, stark racial disparities remain. Black boys make up 18% of the male preschool enrollment, but 41% of the male preschool suspensions. 
Now, this is where it gets a little mysterious, right? Because then they say black girls make up 19% of the female preschool enrollment and 53% of the female suspensions. Now, see, if you don't know the data, if you don't know the data, you walk away saying, oh my God, these girls are so much worse off even than their male counterparts. I'm gonna read the sentence again. Black boys make up 18% of the male preschool enrollment, but 41% of the male preschool suspensions. Black girls make up 19% of female uh, pre female preschool enrollment, but account for an astounding 53% of female suspensions. Let me show you something. Years ago, I created a blog because I was trying to get these things off my chest. I didn't know that's what I was doing, believe it or not, but that's what I was doing. And I was trying to do it initially for black male graduate students who had questions like I did, didn't know where to go, right? And so I was also doing it in a manner where the data that I was running across could be found. Because, you know, these articles come and go. They disappear real fast. I'm telling you, real fast. And I wanted to find a place where we could actually, you know, find it. So hold on. Let me uh, move this over here for a moment. I'm going to share my screen, if you will. Mm, there we go. Okay, so you remember the last sentence I read. I said, if you don't know the data, you walk away thinking the girls are actually worse off than the boys, right? Well, here you go. Look at race and gender out of school suspension. African-American boys and girls have higher suspension rates than any other of their peers. One in five African-American boys and more than one in 10 African-American girls received an out of school suspension. So on the left, you have males. On the right, you have females. The red bar on both sides are black. Black um, males and females. So the blue bar is white. The yellow bar is Hispanic. The, dark, the darker blue bar is Asian Pacific Islander. And the orange bar is American Indian. On both fronts, American Indians are, are second after African Americans. But what do we see? Black males are literally almost twice. Almost twice the number suspended. Get my screen together here. All right, there I go. All right. But again, if you didn't know the data, just reading the article, you would walk away thinking, wow. Either either black girls have it worse or they're really the same. They're both oppressed. We just got to stop both of this. And then, of course, you know, you get the kind of Umar attack on the manosphere, right? You know, this is just white supremacy. We got to, we can't, you know, you, you guys are blaming the women and we got to support, you know, we got to support the whole community. <sighs> Appreciate the support, Nelson. Here's the problem I have with this support the community idea. There's a difference between identifying those in need and identifying categories, right? 
This is what intersectionality is mastered using categories, using common sense, uh, you know, kinds of approaches to suggest, well, if black children are suffering and black children, look, there are, there's no group of children dealing with the issues on par with black males that those black male kids are dealing with. No group. Any targeted support? No. And any conversation about targeted support is quickly dismissed because it's considered sexist. Or so it's not sexist that they are suspended and expelled at higher grades twice the damn rates of black women for all the black girls for all intents and purposes. That's not sexist. The fact that they're graduating high school, graduating high school to a lesser degree, that's not sexist. Right? The fact that they have literally half the degrees since 1976 of black women, when we talk about college, from AA degree to doctorate, black males have half the degree. That's not sexist. Okay. But it's sexist if you actually try to target word. This is why men are so frustrated because there are men that are waking up to this reality. And especially those who have been activists, nationalists, struggling to improve the quality of the community, you start to see there's a difference in how boys and girls are treated. We know there's a difference between men and women. Males and females across the board, there's a difference. And part of what we've been taught is that men and boys need to fall on their swords for the benefit of the community. Appreciate that, Charles. Thank you. We need to fall on our swords. I'm going to tell you, that fall on your sword narrative gets real thin when you watch a four-year-old male being asked to fall on his sword and accept mistreatment. And when there's an attempt to provide targeted resources to his benefit, it's considered a problem. It's considered a problem by the police. It's considered a problem by the teachers. It's considered a problem by the school boards. But when it's also considered a problem by the mothers. Now what? Now what? There's a piece that BGS sent to me. I'm going to share with you. Right. I know it's hard to see. I apologize. I'll try and enlarge it best I can. This is a piece from A.L. A.L. Reynolds III. Right. A book entitled "Do Black Women Hate Black Men?" I believe this was about 1991. There's a section I have highlighted at the bottom. Right. And by me, all means, you know, you can take a screenshot of this, or you can go find the book. You know. Appreciate the support, no one. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, But you can check out this book, but look at the section I have highlighted here. Talking about, you know, black families. So the head of household, usually the mother, explains that the family is willing to help the black female attend high school and college instead of the black male because the family does not want the daughter to end up working as a domestic. The rationale that emerges from my focus groups is that the black male can fend for himself by the time he's an adult, and the black female cannot. 
Black male is left alone to take his chances. The irony of this rationale is that there is no family member, particularly a male, around who is able to teach him how to take his chances. Exactly, Adam. Subordinate male uh, target hypothesis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. This is precisely what each of the pieces I'm talking about sums up to. Kevin, appreciate the uh, cash out. Thank you. Right? This is what we're talking about. The extent to which, even as boys, these boys are seen as grown men. And as grown black men, they're already seen as a problem. So what happens when that's retroactively applied to boys from 3 to 17? And then we expect them to be able to compete by providing them no support, no resources. We don't even acknowledge that they have a different experience. We don't even have to get into the numbers of how much worse. We won't even acknowledge they have a different experience than our girls, unless we regard the girls as more vulnerable. And what did Reynolds point out? We have to hyper-prioritize her because she needs help. Word. And then if you say something about black boys, it becomes, well, why are you attacking the girls? Why are you attacking the women? Why do you hate the women? Why do you hate the girls? We have to help everybody. We got to help the whole community. White supremacy has really messed us up. We can't attack each other. We got we to attack white supremacy. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. I agree. But how come attacking white supremacy always seems to leave boys in a worse position and nobody says a goddamn thing? Why is that? How do you justify boys only being able to read 10% of boys nationally only being able to read at their level by eighth grade? How the fuck do you rationalize that knowing full well that if our girls are the demographic most enrolled in higher education and the boys can't read 90% of them by eighth grade, What the hell does that mean by the time you start talking about college? Now you're going to set up programs to advance the girls. Okay. I think you hear what you want to hear. If you think I hate women, then you're already primed for that. And that's all you've heard me say. Anything that targets the women and paints a negative picture. But you got a community that's nearly 80% single parent, female-led. At what point do we begin to ask the question, how are the boys regarded? If you've got a predominantly female-led family structure, excuse me, female-led family structure, and the boys are suffering, and we still have this pervasive idea that the girls need the majority of the help. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? Well, the way we reconcile it is we silence the men that are pointing it out. We silence the men that are pointing out the disparities in boys and girls. And then we try and shame them. Well, why haven't you set up programs to support boys in school? I have. I was doing it when I was one. By the 11th grade, I was setting up groups for boys. While I was one. I worked in programs that dealt with boys from Philadelphia 
to Nickerson Gardens before I was even 22. And I didn't identify this as a life path in terms of helping black men and boys, but it, it was something I kept finding myself being called to do. And that's an aside, just for those of you who are trying to find your purpose. Nine times out of 10, it's something you've been doing your whole life, even if you don't know it. But I digress. Even when I started as a full-time educator, I started setting up programs for boys and men. But welcome to the Terradome. All right, welcome to the Brotherhood, Great IN, or I-9, excuse me. That's what we're looking at. Appreciate that support, Mogul. Thank you. So we find another one. This one is on uh, jacksonfreepress.com. Big, black, or boy, preschoolers face higher expulsions and suspensions. Implicit bias starts as early uh, starts early in education, really early. New research shows that boys, black children, and especially black boys uh, are more likely to be expelled. Well, welcome to the Appreciate that, Kashif. Welcome to the Brotherhood. Um, Right. Boys are more likely to be expelled or suspended from early education program than their peers who commit similar offenses. In early childhood education, Gilliam has looked at the racial disparities since the 2000s when he conducted research to why young kids are expelled from preschools and who these kids are. He found that all factors that predict preschool expulsion mainly have to do with the teacher's job stress, the children, the child teacher ratio, length of the school day and access to more support. Um, appreciate that mogul let me see Uh, mogul says I was once in a juvenile facility where at least 75% of the black boys couldn't even read absolutely absolutely I'm going to tell you this I'm going to tell you this if you can sit down and watch Creed first Creed right first one not the second one I'm not saying don't watch the second, but I'm saying watch the first one. In the first five minutes, one of the things they do is they take you to a juvenile facility. And they pan the windows of all the doors who are in solitary. If you can watch that scene and have no reaction, as far as I'm concerned, you don't even have a beating heart. Now, why do I identify a movie like that? Because it's, it, yeah, because it's mainstream and it's popularly accessed. I'm not talking about... Appreciate it, Gary. Appreciate the support. I'm not talking about some, you know, obscure documentary that came out 20 years ago that broke all this down that you can't find anywhere. I'm talking about something that's easily accessible. I was five minutes into Creed and I was already shedding a tear the first time I saw that goddamn movie. And I'm not saying that because I didn't like the movie. I'm saying it because it just put it right there in my face. And I knew the data, but it's a very different thing to see boys locked up. In any way. So in terms of this study, uh, Gilliam says none of them have anything to do with the child's behavior. Expulsion is not based on child behavior at all. It's an adult decision. Right? Uh, Gilliam's 2005 research showed that three B's can predict a preschooler's risk of expulsion, big, black or boy. Black children are expelled at twice the rate of white children. Kids that are bigger and taller than their peers, usually four-year-olds, are more likely to be expelled for similar behaviors than three-year-olds. Right? This is more about what's going on in the teacher's mind than on what's than what's going on with the child's actually doing. Gilliam worked with the Congressional Black Caucus back in the early 2000s, and the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights began to collect data 
on preschool enrollment and expulsions. The recent data are concurrent with Gilliam's 2005 research. Black preschoolers are 3.6 times more likely to be suspended than white preschoolers, uh, according to the June 2016 DOE report. Um, in, in, D, in recent research, Gilliam and a, uh, and a team of researchers found that while implicit bias still exists in both white and black early childhood educators, um, how they address that bias or fix it with empathy depends on the teacher's race and the race of the child. Preschool teachers watch the video after being told to look for challenging behavior and track their eye movements. This is what I was telling you about before. Uh, the data shows that teachers watch black children, especially, and this is them talking, not me, especially black boys, the closest. Now, I'm glad they made that qualification because usually that sentence would pass the way it was written. The data shows the teachers watch black children the closest. Bullshit. Bullshit. They watch black boys. When asked who they thought they looked at more, preschool teachers admitted that they watched black boys more closely than the girls, Gilliam said. In the second part of the 2016 research, Gilliam wanted to test the preschoolers' teachers' empathy. This goes with what I was telling you guys earlier. Right. Empathy increased as long as the teacher and the students were in the same uh, uh, racial uh, orientation, racial group. But black teachers overwhelmingly still uh, pushed for greater discipline. Um, this is. Uh, how do I put this? I need to stop cussing. But overall, what I'm trying to point out here is the disparities and the mistreatment starts early. And although we dismiss it and justify it when they're adults, not a lot of people have anything to say when they're three and four. And if the treatment is consistent from three and four all the way through adulthood, maybe we need to identify a different set of problems. Worse yet, when we don't actually set up any serious programs or focus that identifies the need to help black boys and men. Because we're just talking about education from teachers and social work workers. We're not even talking about, say, homelessness, which I would argue for many start as early as high school. I mean, excuse me, as early as uh, elementary school, depending on which kids. Day, CB film. Appreciate that. We need to be able to talk about these things explicitly, not just when people are killed. But here's the thing. If when they're killed, they still can't get any support to prevent the very things from occurring that killed them. then what conversations are we actually having? If four-year-old black boys can't even be identified, then what are we actually doing? What are we actually talking about? Appreciate the support, Genuine Engineer. See, this is where, this is where at the end of the day, black men are becoming more and more frustrated. And I'm not just talking about, you know, guys who are in and out of trouble, in and out of jail. I'm talking about educators. I'm talking about professionals, white collar, talking about blue collar. I'm talking about black men across class, across region, even across country. Somebody wrote in here earlier, this is happening in the UK, right? It's not limited to just here. The black men from Africa to Europe, to Australia, South America, to North America, are finding themselves increasingly frustrated. And people don't like the fact that they're not being frustrated. They're not frustrated in a way they want them to be. Black men are finding themselves frustrated across the board. 
Mogul, appreciate the support. They're finding themselves frustrated across the board in ways that people can't aren't anticipating and don't like. Because now black men are starting to call out anybody, anybody who's who's actually become a, a, a detriment to them. Um, there's a quote that I haven't read in a while, but I talked about it before <clears throat> and it actually comes from Antonio Moore. And this was something that, you know, it was, it, it took place in a conversation that uh, he and Yvette had on their show a long time ago. And I put this quote in one of my blog articles because the first time I heard it, I was, um, I was shook, not shook as in scared, but shook as in frustrated, rageful, and sad at the same time. I don't even have a word for that, really. But it reads, you know, because at one point, Yvette asked him a question. She said, what happens if we don't get better? What happens if people just keep making these erroneous assessments and agreeing with erroneous data and saying this well, is welcome okay? to the Apocalypse, appreciate that. Welcome to the brotherhood. She said, what happens if this continues? And he said, let me be honest. I think eventually black men are going to realize it and turn on everybody. Because what the system is built on is black men not knowing that they live in a different life than everybody, including black women. They're living a life where they're unemployed, but expected to buy dates. They're supposed to protect and provide like a man. They're put in jail at rates we've never seen before. He said, I was talking to an attorney and they said that black men should get together and claim refugee status within with another country just to make a political point that nobody cares. And he talked about the, the, the chart he created on from the DOJ on incarceration. He says, this chart came as a result of me realizing nobody had framed this thing according to gender, which makes no sense. Now, this is true. Because when I was in graduate school, they would talk about black incarceration rates. Again, we're going back to that flat blackness, that generic language, black incarceration rates. And then they would, they would, what they would do is they would say, well, we know you already know how many black men are incarcerated. So we don't need to go into details of that, but then they give incarceration rates for black women, you know, and then they would compare black women. Appreciate that Abraham. Appreciate the support. Then they would compare black women to white women, right? So you have this kind of shell game going so that we can continue to talk about black incarceration rates. And when I tried to find data on the hard numbers, the actual hard numbers of how many people were incarcerated by race and gender, it took me a long time before I actually found it. And this was this was probably eight or nine years ago. So by the time I actually found it, it blew me away because at the time you had almost 900,000 black men incarcerated, and about 65,000 black women. And we were talking about black incarceration rates. That, if nothing else, is the perfect description of flat blackness. Black incarceration rates or black incarceration period is a political football that's useful and powerful, right? People can use it to advance themselves, but it really obscures the issue. And it obscures the issues very purposefully so that black men and women appear to be the same. We can be one monolithic group that's being attacked and so on and so forth and we can go from there. But then, and black men went for that for a very long time. We didn't have a problem with that. 60s, 70s, 80s, we didn't have a problem with that. It didn't become a problem until intersectionality. When intersectionality came up and actually began to say black women are the most oppressed group across race, class, sex, gender, 
um, and, and all kinds of other, you know, ability, eyebrow growth, height, you know, there's all these different sh- shit they came up with. And they made the argument that black women were the most oppressed group. Then it was like, black men were like, wait, what? What? Wait, what? We didn't say nothing about it. What's the fallout of that? Now we're seeing programs. But anyway, let me continue. So he points out that, you know, the chart he developed that dealt with incarceration by gender. He says, uh, this chart came as a result of realizing nobody had framed this thing according to gender, which makes no sense. Nobody, not even the DOJ. Because once you frame it against gender, then black men realize that this is some horrible shit and they might just like raise up on everybody. When I say raise up, I'm not talking about literally rioting in the streets. I'm talking about like becoming real despondent, become like really like I'm not fucking with nothing. No marriage, no nothing. I'm out. Don't nobody care. Ain't nobody trading nothing with me. All of that I just read was a quote. All of it. One thing he didn't get right is there is rage and it isn't just despondent depression. There is a pulling away. There's no question about that. But there is also a a group of men in social media that have begun a dialogue that is completely unregulated. It is not controlled. It is not manicured for presentation. It is not made, it is not perfumed so that it is pleasant when one smells a waft of the conversation. There's none of that. It's brutal at times. Sometimes it's dead wrong. Sometimes it's dead right. But it is an unregulated space where black men are actually putting ideas, concepts, issues on the table that they have no other place to do so at. All of the places we associate with black male discussion have been virtually undermined. You know, metaphorically speaking, there is no more barbershop. The barbershop is also salon. There are no more safe spaces and and spaces for men only because we've been told that male-only spaces were inherently sexist. So they have to be democratized. We have no such care about female spaces, you know. No. Everything even down to boys' cartoons and action figures need to be, you know, democratized to include women and girls. We don't care if women and girls' cartoons and action figures have to include boys. Or even when males are included, they're basically just, you know, background noise to whatever the girls are. None of that is important. We only have to democratize and and regulate male spaces. So now we've reached the point where males have had no place to go. Locker rooms were democratized. The bathrooms were democratized. All around this idea that boys had this special boys club that they benefited from. Well, some did. Black men? No. Nevertheless, few spaces for black men to congregate. What did we do? Black men found a space to go to that was free and allowed them to communicate with one another and share ideas. Now, it is not perfumed. It is not nice. It is not clean. Most brothers on there don't agree with everybody 100% of the time. Shit, none of us do. But here's the thing. The reason I came to this space as an academic is I found academically, you couldn't talk to anybody about the shit we all knew was happening. When you have to get your mentors drunk at a conference to tell you the goddamn truth about what it is we've been writing about for five years, what I've been doing my dissertation on, when I got to get you drunk as a senior scholar to tell me the truth and to let me know that I'm not 
crazy. You see this shit too. That's a problem. When you can't get a book published that talks about this in a language that people can comprehend, that's a problem. When you can't have a presentation at a conference because any male platform, any male presentation has to be democratized with a female presence or a focus on women and girls so that we don't exclude women and girls. But when we go to the women and girls panels, which tend to outnumber the male panels by 10, if not 20, and I've counted them, those panels don't have to be democratized to include any any focus on men and boys. None of them. And then when you look at the population of those who are going to these conferences, And it's eight to one female to male. Can't talk about that either. Can't write about it. Can't talk about it. Can't lecture on it in your class. Can't congregate. And even when the students come to you, particularly the male students and say they're seeing the same things at their level, you can't help them with it. Well, nature abhors a vacuum for one. And for two, you ever seen the documentary uh, Bastards of the Party? Somebody in there said something really brilliant. So when the institutions in a community are removed, the community will recreate those institutions even without proper guidance. And I'm paraphrasing. So. Appreciate the support, Marvin. When black male spaces are gone, are undervalued, are dismissed. Well, what does that mean? Basically, it means that men will recreate it on their own terms. Whether they're educated, whether they're in positions to do so, whether they're moneyed, doesn't matter. They will find a way to recreate it. And what has been recreated are black male-only spaces. We used to refer to them as rites of passage. Now they take on a variety of different forms. But that's what the discussion is. And that's what's starting to break into the mainstream. And the mainstream is shocked. that you have this many pissed off black men that are saying things that are not politically correct. Well, here's the thing. The things that need to be said can only be come to outside of the system of political correctness. Why? Because the thoughts and the experiences of men who are going through these things are not included in what is politically correct in the first goddamn place. Now, I don't always agree with the form it comes out with, and and I don't even always agree with the conclusions reached, but that's not the point. It isn't always about agreement. At a particularly early stage in in the discussion, it needs to be about Brothers putting stuff on the table that they've experienced and they are reflecting on to have that dialogue. That's what's important. That's why YouTube was so important. Aside from the fact that it was free, a brother walking the street in in Harlem can record a video and say, this is something I just experienced. And a brother in Texas can go, you know what? I had that experience too. A brother in California, right? Brother in Arkansas, Idaho, Ohio, Hawaii, and then London, and Ghana, and South Africa, and Australia, Brazil. When you get brothers that actually get to compare notes on a device that they're holding in their hand and they can do so for free. Now, there are obviously a lot of problems that come with that. No regulation, there's no citations, there's no data, there's no, te- you know, there's not always uh, uh, an, uh, uh, an access group or, uh, you know, a study that's been used. I mean, it's raw. It's a raw space, but it's necessary. This is the explosion that I just cited from you when I read uh, Antonio Moore's little piece, which was, you know, spoken aloud, of course, in the video. But I'm saying this is the space 
And it's already been happening. And it's being vilified because it is not clean. It's not manicured. It is unwelcome. It doesn't make people feel good when they hear it. We don't all leave smiling and laughing together. Sometimes you get a black eye. Sometimes you get a busted lip. I'm talking about in the context of the discussion. It's raw. And it needs to be early on. It needed to be. And it's still developing. And you know what? It's going to develop as black men develop it. And it should be. It is not to be regulated. And nobody needs to be coming in here telling what telling brothers what they need to say and how they need to say it. But the question is, can you deal with the ideas? Can you deal with the experiences? Can you deal with the content of what's being said? Fuck how it's being said. Can you deal with what's being said? I don't give a damn if you don't like the reports I just read, but if black boys as young as four are being treated like criminals, can you deal with that? Or are you just upset about who said it and how he said it? I don't give a damn about none of that. And I'm not waiting for some publishing company to tell me when I can write about it. As long as I write about it in a language they like. Fuck that. Can you deal with what's happening to black men and boys? And if you can't deal with it, get out of the room. I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you want it. I don't care if it makes you feel good when you're done hearing it. It needs to be said. And it needs to be said, frankly speaking, by some pissed off brothers that are tired of being told to be quiet. That's who needs to say it. Because when I hear people quote black men at conferences, you know, and they read the quotes, this nice manicured fashion. Everybody sits around, we're sipping tea and coffee, legs crossed, professionally dressed. Oh, I don't know. Wow, I don't know. a lot of frustration. He's, he's upset. Oh, that's interesting. Oh. No. You need to feel it. To some extent, you need to be a little worried about whether or not you're going to leave the room safe. You need to be worried. You need to feel the intensity of it. But as long as you're at a distance talking shit about men, it's easy to dismiss. What I want to, you know, really tie to this, however, is that if you can do this with men, just don't forget you're also dismissing your boys. And I'm talking to men and women alike who've grown quite comfortable. Hell, there are brothers in the manosphere that have grown quite comfortable with this. Sower of Seed, appreciate that. Who've grown quite comfortable dismissing other black men. Jealous of who's been picked, who's who gets to be on the new. I don't give a goddamn. I'll be honest with you. As long as the message gets out, as long as the words make it to where they need to be made. And if there's a healthy dose of discomfort at how the word is given, I ain't got a problem with that. I don't. I mean, look, I'm a big dude. I'm over 300 pounds. I got locks. I wear Appreciate the sport reconstruction. I wear a Lexton. Appreciate that. I wear a hat cocked to the side. You are not likely going to see me on CNN anytime soon. I'm not pretty. I'm not even cute. It is what it is. 
I don't give a goddamn who has decided which of us gets to be heard as long as the message is heard. That's what I care about. Because people are going to come in and start asking questions. What is this space? What's going on? They need to. Because black men have been silenced for too long. And we've been silenced with a polite, glove-covered hand. Told to be appropriate. Told to be good mama's little boys. Sit quietly. Your turn will come. And it doesn't. Not given any support, but told to stop whining about it. And even when you go to college and get your degrees and make six figures and you happen to grow over six feet tall and you do all the things you were told to do. uh, Simeon, I appreciate the cash out. Even when you accomplish all the things you're told good men accomplish. They move the goalposts. And you're still both a nigga inside your community and outside of it at the same time. Get married, have a couple kids. She leave you, divorce you, take half your shit. Complain about it. Your problem. Get married again because you're told a good man never gives up on his community. Have more kids, get divorced, lose half your shit again. Got to move in with your mother, live in a garage because you're broke. Now you're weak. I'm like, okay. Is there anything else going on here? No, there's nothing else going on. Just be quiet. Keep working. Be quiet. We're waiting for you to die. Many a man is getting pissed off with that. And the funny part is there's so many people that have gotten used to this paradigm that how dare you question it. And when you question it, even those who are sincerely interested in hearing what you have to say are shocked because it's never crossed their mind that you experience the world this way. Why? Because they've not had to listen to you. What did BGS say in one of his videos a couple weeks ago? You are the floor. You are to be walked on. How much attention do you play? Do you pay to the floor? As long as it's vacuumed and manicured and everything else looks nice. How much attention do you really pay to the floor? I think even in our community, we've gotten used to not paying attention to the floor. Even black men don't pay attention to each other. We compete with each other. We cuss each other out, call each other bitches, especially on YouTube, make videos about each other. Who's weak, who's feminine. We ain't alpha enough. I have just too many people dying for that shit, as far as I'm concerned. I had to watch another black boy fail out of school because his teacher thinks he's a menace at six years old and you want to argue about who's alpha? Give a goddamn about who's alpha. I want to know what we as black men can do about this. I'm not waiting for other people to give us permission to do it. So we start with a show where I try and put the issues out there for us to talk about. But the irony is when I put the issues out there for black men, those are the videos y'all watch the least. Something's gotta change. And the fellas have to be the ones to change it. We do. Now I'm not waiting for anyone's permission. I'm gonna say what I gotta say, whether you like it or not. And I hope you brothers will join me. Now, there is one last piece that I thought would be interesting that offers a lot of potential. We'll see if it works. This is an article on AtlantaBlackStar.com. It is up right now. 
entitled, the University of California system will no longer require SAT or ACT scores after test biases called out by students. Right? The UC system has agreed to no longer take SAT and ACT test scores into consideration from school and scholarship applicants and a massive win for minority students and those with disabilities. The ruling, which was announced on Friday, May 14th, signals the end of a drawn out court battle between the UC system and the students over whether considering scores from the test put the students with disabilities and those from low-income families at a disadvantage when applying to the system's university. The lawsuit filed in 2019 on behalf of a coalition of students, advocacy groups, and the Compton Unified School District. Appreciate the support engaging Black. Uh, a majority of Black and Hispanic district in Los Angeles County claimed that low-income students of color weren't as equally equipped as their privileged counterparts to answer test questions correctly due to inherent bias within the tests. It also pointed out that wealthier students oftentimes had more access to the tools to, excuse me, to help them succeed, such as test prep courses and workbooks. Students with disabilities claimed that testing obstacles were present or presented in the form of difficulties procuring transportation to and from testing sites. Word. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is an opportunity. Appreciate that generous support, Rock. Thank you. This is an opportunity, right, for students. But here's the problem. How many of these will target black students? Black male students. How many? So you heard the language in the article, right? Minority, disability. You know, one of the articles I pointed out earlier, when you say disability, you're still talking about black males. Disability, I know we think we think disability and we think of somebody in a wheelchair or whatnot. And that's and that's true. That's a factor. But don't forget, disability can also include, you know, reading disability. Right? What you'll find is there are a disproportionate number of black males that are suffering from these diagnoses. So whether you want to obscure the language with talking about children people of color, students, disability. In every context, the worst group you're still talking about is black males. Yeah. No escaping it. There's no escaping it. So what I propose is that we not let people escape it. I'm not trying to make this comfortable for folks. So that they can drink their tea and crumpets and come to a nice conference and discuss black children's educational issues and go home. Fuck that. No, we're talking about black males. And since we know enough about the data to know that's what it is, I'm not waiting for you to get permission, we're going to do it. I, and that's principally what I write about, what I focus on, because the numbers just keep verifying it and the need for it. So again, I hope we can push past this performance bullshit about who gets the most likes, who gets the most views, who's who gets called in by mainstream presses. I hope we can push past who gets the most attention, who gets the most pussy, who gets the most whatever. Push past all of that bullshit and prioritize the five-year-old black boy who's being treated like shit. And if this manosphere or any social media platform can't be used to improve his life, then what the fuck good is it for? 
وقريتي Because if it doesn't benefit him, I don't want any part of it. We got too much goddamn work to do. Too many boys suffering and nobody cares. Nobody. Even going back 30 years, this was the importance of that article I did a piece on a couple weeks ago. I told you BGS sent me. Going back 30 years in Detroit, in Chicago, in New York, in L.A., in the Bay Area, whenever there was a focus on black boys, the first ones, the first ones to oppose it were their mothers. Yo, I appreciate your time. Appreciate your support. Appreciate you being here. Um, we're going to end it. I'm not going to have um, an office hours tonight. I got papers to grade. I hope you'll stand with me in reinforcing the importance of highlighting the plight of men and boys, black men and boys, being unapologetic about that language, calling out people that obscure the language to tap dance around the unpleasantness of the discourse giving people an intellectual black eye. I hope you'll stand with me in doing so. Y'all know what it is. You know how I close out? Brothers, be reminded that we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man-children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined. Is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.